0: All right, good morning. Welcome to our continuing study of Matthew as he records the life of Jesus. And you remember, we're in the last several hours of Jesus' earthly life. And last week, we looked at the devotion of Mary to Jesus as she spent just a lot of money to pour out her affection upon him through this anointing oil, Jesus calls it or says she has anointed my body, you know, me for my burial, and so although I didn't end with those last verses, Jesus does associate her anointing with his burial, and then of course there is a discussion: why waste the money and whatever? And then of course Jesus corrects that. It's interesting how often, even as believers, we may think that our giving to the Lord's work is a waste. And ours is to give in faith to honor God. Right? That's the motive. Ours is not to give in such a way that We give if they use it for this, that, and the other, and if they're not going to do that. The giving is our releasing unto God. That amount that he has declared is honoring him. The use of the money is someone else's responsibility. So we don't give under normal circumstances because the church is doing such and such, or we don't withhold because the church is not doing such and such. Now, we're not talking about giving to heretical groups and things like that, obviously. So this morning, we continue with this. And during this meal sometimes, remember, at the home of Simon the leper, sometime after Jesus says, she has anointed me for my burial... We begin with verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the high priest, the chief priests. Let's stop there. She has anointed me for my burial. And then the next comment that is made, essentially, in the next little section, is that Judas gets up and he leaves. And he leaves with a purpose of betraying Jesus. And so after Matthew recalls Jesus anointing by Mary as preparation for his burial in verse 12, he then turns his attention to Judas' betrayal. And the question is this, why does Judas betray Jesus? What's behind this? Some say it was politics. Some say it was money. Some say it was jealousy. Well, perhaps all of these and perhaps more were in the mix because it's interesting that the Lord will use particular issues in our lives for the purpose of manifesting something very much deeper. But the issue here isn't that Judas did this, as you have often heard. Well, Judas did this because what he wanted to do, he wanted to force Jesus into proclaiming himself, And rallying his power to overthrow Rome was speculation. Judas was doing this, and it is said that he was greedy. He had the purse, remember, that totally in order to financially help himself. Perhaps so. But there is the basic reason here. And the basic reason why Judas betrayed Jesus has nothing intrinsically or basically or essentially to do with Judas. It has to do with God. Now, do we get that? The issue here is not Judas. The issue here is God. And so let's hopefully I'll get through all this today in a way that will leave us more confused than when we went into it. Because if you can explain this pretty clearly, I think you're better than all the pastors in this church. So let's read this verse, and I don't know in your outline whether Evan has included this. Why did Jesus, sorry, why did Judas betray Jesus? If we were to look at John 17, verse 12, Jesus is praying for the church, and he is praying for himself, the glory of God to be manifested in him. He's praying for his people, the church that existed at that point, his disciples, and then he is praying for those who will come because of their testimony. And so this is the great high priestly prayer. Now, this is what Jesus says. Listen to these words very carefully. He's talking to the Father, and he says, I have, do you have a Bible that you can underline things in? I have guarded, underline that word guarded. Underline that word guarded. Read your Bibles slowly and carefully, listening to the Holy Spirit, rather than just getting through the material. I have guarded them. Who? These disciples. Well, you may think if you don't go any further, it includes all 12. But then he says what? And not one of them has been lost. Remember in chapter 10, Jesus says, you know, my sheep hear my voice. I lose none of them. The Father gives them to me. I lose none of those whom the Father has given to me. So listen, I lose none whom the Father has given to me as one of my disciples, meaning one of those who are in Christ, born again or will be born again, who will be children of God. That's what this word is all about. I have guarded them. I have lost none. Did you see that? I have what? Lost none. By the way, that should speak something about losing your salvation, but that's another day. I have lost how many? None. none. Now, if we stop there, we get a false understanding, don't we? Because what, what else does it say? Accept. Accept. Did you all say accept? Accept. The son of perdition, or your Bible may say uh, destruction or doom. The son of perdition. Why? In order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus has guarded the 11 disciples from Satan's attacks so they would be kept safe, listen, through the ordeal of his arrest Trials and crucifixion. Notice I did say trials. There's six of them which we'll talk about later. It's not the trial of Jesus. It is in a comprehensive way, but specifically there's six of them. So Jesus has guarded these men, not only during their time with him for the past whatever numbers of years, but he has guarded them against the schemes or the attacks of the devil to undermine their faith and to throw them into all kinds of confusion that would allow them or result in them not being able to be saved or remain or continue, rather, as his disciples. He's guarded them through, not from, but through the difficulties. Psalm 23, 4, I I am reminding of that. What does it say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. And so he's guarded these 11. Okay, why didn't Jesus also guard Judas? These 11 had to be guarded by Jesus' prayer and request to God in order for them not to fall away. May I repeat that? Jesus' prayer had, sorry, these 11 men had to be guarded from falling away by Jesus' intercession. Correct? Why not Judas? He withheld that guarding, keeping prayer from Judas. He withheld it purposefully. Why? Judas' betrayal was a part of... What is Acts 2:23? Remember Peter was preaching. I think we talked about this last week and he says according to the definite plan what? And foreknowledge of God. Remember that? You crucified the Lord of glory. You remember when Peter was talking? And so because of the definite plan of God, because of the foreknowledge of God, Jesus was crucified. And then a part of that foreknowledge, you see, is Judas' betrayal. Judas is a part, an integral part of the definite plan of God for the arrest, trials, and crucifixion of his son. So Judas' betrayal involves two twin truths that are at work simultaneously with one another. It is the work of God's absolute, complete, comprehensive sovereignty with man's personal responsibility. Now, we're, not, we're going to go into that, to, into that a little bit in a few minutes. But as we do, as always with this kind of understanding, we have to be very careful to keep in mind several verses Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Do you have that in your notes? What does that say? For the secret things. What does that mean? The things that God has not revealed. The secret things. Ah, re- re- oh, boy. Somebody help me be praying for me this morning. My mind isn't going where it should be. The secret things belong to God. What do we do with these issues that are secret that we cannot understand clearly? we are to lead them with god what does 1 corinthians 13:9 say somebody remember that here's a man who has more theological understanding than probably everybody on earth and what does he say in 1 corinthians 13:9 say it again i'm sorry i can't hear you does somebody have the verse just read it out judy So we know what? Partially, in part. What does that mean? That means this we don't know everything. What does verse 12 of that same chapter say? We what? See how? In a mirror, how? Smoky, dimly. We can make something out, but it's there. We know it's there, but we can't make out enough of the details to go into the detailed specifics. But we know it's there. We know it's real, but we don't have enough information to be able to fully understand or explain it. And so it comes down with sovereignty and man's responsibility. How can God be sovereign and me be responsible? So what that means is, some say, in an attempt to do what the Bible says do not do. Well, here's what it means. The word foreknowledge. Epinosis, it means to know ahead of time, which is the secondary meaning of it. So this is what it means, that God, in his comprehensive knowledge of all things, and would you agree that God is comprehensively knowledgeable of all? Certainly he is. He looks down the corridors of time, and he sees that Judas will betray Jesus. And therefore, he plans it this way. He looks down the corridors of time, and he sees that Phage will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, he says Phage, because he knows that Phage will be calling upon him. And so what that does is put the burden and the initiative upon us, to move God, rather than upon God to move us. If God is doing what he's doing and deciding what he's deciding, based on what he knows we will do, then he has submitted enough of his sovereignty to us So that the plan of salvation, certainly accomplished by Jesus at the cross, makes it possible for people to be saved. And it makes it possible for only those who will receive Jesus. Those are the ones who will be saved. So he looks down the corridors of time, Wendy, and he sees that you're going to say yes to Jesus. And he saves you. You see... Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. He did not. He did not die making salvation possible. Steve, isn't that correct? You can say yes. I'm not being tricky on this one. Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. I'm going too far on this. I have to watch myself, but I think it's important. Jesus died to make salvation actual. In other words, his death saves. His death does not make salvation available. Can we get that? His death saves. It doesn't make it available only to those whom he knows will be saying yes. He saves his people in the death and resurrection of Christ. How? According to his foreknowledge. Now, we did it a couple of weeks ago. What is this foreknowledge? We are in Christ. We are in the heart and knowledge and, 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 uh, of God where he loves us before he creates us some kind of way in God. He has a people in his heart and mind, a specific people, a specific number of people in his heart and mind. He loves these people. Epinosis or foreknowledge has to do with the relationship with God that produces the activity. Certainly God knows the activity, but it is an activity of relationship, not an activity that produces relationship. The activity is the fruit. The root is the relationship. If the activity is the root, then the fruit is fellowship or in a relationship. We have it backward. And so how do I know? I would ask you just to look at and ponder 1 Peter 1 20 as a proof. For God has foreknowledge, uh, for, has foreknown his own son. <clears throat> what? Jesus became the son of God because God knew what he would do? Are you kidding? He has always been the son of God. Therefore, he did what he did. D- do we see this? And so, in the plan of God, and I don't judge this because I can't judge myself, let alone God. In the plan of God, in the eternal plan of God, Judas was not a disciple in a saving sense. Do we hear me? Judas was not a disciple in a saving sense. I didn't say he wasn't a disciple in a what? Salvation, salvific sense. But he was a disciple to accomplish, or further rather, the purpose of God. So Jesus, Judas, uh, was just, just... Judas is personally responsible for his decision. Listen to James, James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. What does that mean? God did not make Judas do what he did. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And by the way, it's inflamed by Satan, right? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. When desire gets into action, it produces sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God was not tempting or making Judas do what Judas did not want to do. Judas already was sinful in his heart. He already wanted to do what he did. God was not making Judas do this. That's man's responsibility. Judas did what was in his heart. God did not coerce him. God does not coerce. The question is, of course, could God have prevented this? Well, we have to be careful how we answer that. Yes, he could have in one sense, and no, he could not have in another sense. And we were talking this morning, I think, who was is Isaac, you and I were talking, and some people say, "Well, any one of the disciples could have betrayed Jesus. That's false. That's not true. Don't listen to these man-created explanations. Let us go with what the Bible tells us. It is speculation, and speculation always leads, if we allow it, to unbelief always leads, if we allow it to continue without bringing it under the supervision and the authority of God's word, leads to some sort of false faith, unbelief. It always will. You see, we are not to be speculative. We are to be receiving the word of God, believing the word of God, and walking in that word and when there is a word that does not give us in our own hearts and minds sufficient understanding we leave it alone we just say i accept that as god's word as far as i understand it and i move along trusting god i don't go beyond what god gives me but divine sovereignty does that mean that jesus could not have protected G- judas he didn't protect him natty he didn't pray for him right By the way, it is interesting in John 17 when Jesus says, I don't pray for the world. Believers, be careful about praying for the world. I pray, Father, that everybody be saved. False theology, false theology. Jesus said, I don't. I just pray for these whom God has given me. Right? Whoo, that kills a lot of evangelistic fervor. Jesus would have been put out of some of these churches. Oh, I mean, really? We pray for God's elect. Well, who are they? I don't know. So we pray, Father, save your people who are in the world. That's what we pray. And so could Jesus have protected Judas? Yes and no. Potentially, yes. But not according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. From the very beginning, the Bible shows that God protects some and not others. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.5, you may remember this verse. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved or protected Noah and his family. Everybody else drowned. God protected some, and he didn't protect others. Can we get into our hearts and minds that this is not fair? It's not fair, Mike. Really. Really. Seriously, is it fair? Really, it I don't think it's fair. Do you think it's fair? Jesse, I don't think it's fair. Chris, do you think this is fair? I honestly don't think it's fair. The question is not fairness. The question is rightness, truth. That's the question. Is it right for God to do this? Yes, because God is right in all his ways. Coach, do you understand this? I mean, do you understand how to, you know, well, you know. God doesn't protect everyone. He protects according to his character and according to his purpose. God protected Noah and didn't protect the rest. Luke 22, 31 to 32, you remember this? Peter, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to deny you. I'm with you. I'm your man. Come hella high water, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm with you. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon. What? You remember that verse? What does he say? Simon, Simon, what? Satan has. Desired or demanded permission. Now, that's a whole nother area. Hmm. Demanded permission to sift you as wheat. What's the next word? But. You have to go with these biblical buts. But. Now, look, look, look. Let's go back to John 17, John 17, 12. I have guarded them. How has he guarded Peter, for instance? But I have prayed for you. Well, wait a minute. How did Jesus know that this would happen, that he could pray for him? He knew it ahead of time. God gave him the knowledge, the understanding, the revelation. I have prayed for you that your Not that you don't deny me. He didn't pray that. He didn't pray that. He's never praying, oh, God, don't don't allow them to suffer. Don't allow them to experience tribulation. He never prays that. He says, I have prayed that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, not... I pray that your faith fail not, and I hope to God that some kind of way he heard my prayer and he's going to answer it. And Jesus said, and you're not going to, and you're not going to be fail, right, when you are converted. Correct? Do you remember this? So how did he protect Peter from falling away? He prayed for him. Why did he protect Peter from falling away by praying? Because Peter was eternally elect. Come on, come on, come on. It has nothing to do with Peter. It has everything to do with God and you may say well wait that's not fair thank god he's not fair according to human standards but he is just and holy and true and loving and good and merciful and patient and kind and forbearing amen fairness is a human issue that always will result in disaster it always will result in disaster for what is fair for me is unfair for you and so some kind of way fairness if it's going to operate is going to create a problem but what is the way is God's rightness between the two of us and that will join us together it's not fair the way they did this you're right Thank God there is no fairness in him in this issue. He is a just and holy God. Jesus said, I've guarded them, but not Judas. Why? That the scriptures might be fulfilled. The scriptures that might be, the scriptures might be fulfilled is a phrase about God's essential personal sovereignty as he declares his will and ways so that all may know that he is a sovereign Lord of glory. He tells you ahead of time. And then when it happens, you can know that God is God. And by the way, he's not telling you what's going to happen ahead of time because he knows it. That's That's not the case. Don't say that. That's not the case. He declares the future, not because he knows it. But because he decrees it, therefore, he knows it. Do you see that? The future is his will outworking. And so the outworking is according to his eternal plan. Can you say amen? Amen. Certainly he knows it. But is that the primary issue? James, what is the primary issue? God's sovereign decree. Certainly he knows. I'm not denying he doesn't know, but the knowing is not the primary issue. It's the, the willing, the eternal plan and pre-knowledge, if you would, of God. This means that all of God's works and ways, as I said, are announced in the Scriptures. Therefore, Judah's betrayal was announced in the Scriptures centuries before he was betrayed. We talked about this again this morning. I think Isaac did in in, in Psalm 41. Listen, this was written years before Jesus. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Jesus knows the scriptures. And when he reads this scripture, probably as a little boy, the Holy Spirit who is given to Jesus without measure tells Jesus, It's about you. This is about you. Jesus knows this scripture applies to him and applies specifically to Judas before he calls Judas to be part of the twelve. Do we see it, man? Did Jesus know that he would never have asked Judas? Are you kidding? Because he knew it, he called Judas. Are you with me on this? Because he knew it, he asked Judas, or he called Judas, to fulfill the definite plan of God for his life, coming as the Lamb of God. He knows this, therefore, he does it. He knows God's plan. John 13, 17, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread lifted up his heel against me. Remember, he's, he's quoting from that. He says, I know this psalm. And I know that when I chose Judas, I did it knowing this psalm and that I knew it was Judas specifically. So some kind of way, revelation of the Holy Spirit, the gift of knowledge. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, when, Judas, he sees, when Jesus sees Judas, he knows that's the man who's going to betray me. That's the man. Judas, come and be one of my disciples. Come and be one of them. You see, no manipulation of Jesus. He wasn't caught in any trap. The world is not getting him into a corner. This man is the Lord of glory, comprehensively sovereign in all of the activities whatsoever in his total life. Amen? This is our God. We're sitting here today as saved people. Why? Because we are part of God's plan. Not because you said yes to Jesus, but because Jesus said yes to you, because you were given to him by God the Father before the foundation of the world. We're here in Christ because of his work, not because of ours. Therefore, Paul over and over says, No boasting, no boasting, no boasting why I called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. I was in Christ. Therefore, I called upon him in whom I have been eternally included. In refusing to pay for, pray for Judas, Jesus was obeying the eternal decree of God. To use Judas' sinful nature as an instrument to bring about the good of the cross. How many of you believe, oh, the time, how many of you believe Judas' betrayal of Jesus was good? I'm raising my hand on that. I'm talking about good in relation to God. Good. Drop one of the O's out of it and what do you have? God. How many of you believe that Judas' betrayal of Jesus was good? How many of you really believe that? How many of you believe Jesus' death was good? It was not a tragedy. This is no tragedy. This is the work of a good, glorious God. So therefore, what verse do I remember? Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that God works in all things for the good for those who love him and who are the called according to his eternal and definite plan before the foundation of the world in ephesians one four it didn't turn out good for Judas, but it was good according to god's eternal plan, therefore it's good. you see, we hesitate why because we 're too much in touch with our own humanity and not enough in the divine humanity of the man in the heavens. Amen. We have to be in touch with humanity in that humanity who sits in the right hand, at the right hand of God in the throne of God in glory. Amen? That's the humanity. That's the flesh that we need to be in touch with, not our own. Here's the mystery. God used G- Judas' own free, free of coercion, own free will decision, freely deciding this to bring about God's eternal decree of the redemption of his people through the betrayal and death of his son. Also, and I'm going to skip a lot of this, another aspect that shows us that Judas was never a part of the redemptive community, although he was a part of the redemptive plan. Can we get that? He was a part of the redemptive plan as one of the disciples, but he was never a part of the redemptive community. John I'm sorry, Matthew seven twenty two is it seven twenty one and twenty two. Jesus says, Depart from me, you wicked, I never knew you. It isn't that Judas was saved and fell away. That's foolishness. And so one of the phrases, or a, a, a Hebrew idiomatic phrase to show us this is the word son of perdition. Do you see that? The son of perdition. In John chapter 17, verse 12. The son of perdition. Except what? The son of perdition, that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. What is the son of perdition? It's a Hebrew phrase that has to do with one who, from the beginning, has been of disaster, uh, perdition, or of Satan. Let me quickly go through this. This is the same title of 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Listen to what Paul says. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. We typically call him the Antichrist, but the anti- word Antichrist is only used in First and Second John. It's used nowhere else in the Bible. But you can call him the Antichrist if you want to. This is the son of perdition. This is the man who will rise up called the beast in Revelation, remember, and who will attack and destroy as much as he can, hopefully in his mind, to utterly destroy the testimony of God in the church. This is not a man who was saved at one time and who lost his salvation and then became very bitter with God. This is a man who from the very beginning has never been part of God's redemptive community. And it's the same term that Jesus uses for Judas. This man wants to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus. Verse 15, that was verse 14 of Matthew. And I'll get through this. And Judas goes to the high priest and he asks, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that amount, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Not only was a betrayal part of God's saving plan, according to predestined plan of God, even the amount of money. Remember Zechariah 11, 12. Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. This means this. And this is so important for us to get. This is so important for us to get. This means that every aspect. Is that in your notes? Is this in your notes, the last thing? Would you, would you underline and circle every aspect? And think about your own life as I read this. This means every aspect. I should have put of Jesus' entire life, but I'm accentuating these last worst days. Every aspect. How, how much, Lester? How much is left out? Nothing. How much is included? Everything. Every aspect of Jesus' arrest, trials, and crucifixion, including the betrayal of Judas, was under the direct supervision and the administration of God, according, I should have said, according to his eternal uh, decree, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What does it say about my life? What does it say about your life? Is the God who so orchestrated the passion of Jesus, a passion meaning his arrest, his trials, and his crucifixion, that's typically what the passion of Jesus means, is the God who so orchestrated absolutely, completely, and perfectly, sovereignly orchestrated everything, Can he and does he do that in my life when I am being arrested by things of this world, arrested by something in me, arrested by others' attitudes, arrested by whatever? Can he be trusted to be in absolute control when I am in a trial? Trials. Trials. Can he be in control when I am feeling the nails of, and the whips of crucifixion in my body, in my mind, in my feelings, in my emotions, in my desires, in my motives, in my actions? Is he in control? Can we trust him? Can you? Yes. Because the good of this is, Comes three days later, the glory of the resurrection, and so first Peter chapter two, and is probably beginning around verse twenty two or twenty three he says, We're part of the sufferings of Christ, we're part of them. God is doing in us to a very minimal extent what he did in his Son so that as the one who has redeemed the world in his sufferings is still the one who is redeeming the world in the sufferings of his church, so that in our sufferings his resurrection and ascension and glorification and exaltation are being manifested in the midst of this. So this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's verse 8, that even death itself was at work in me. We were so underburdened that we thought we were going to die. And even death itself, so that, you're going to have to look that up. Second Corinthians, I think it's 1, 8, 9. So that we may trust in God and not in ourselves. I don't like this. Practically in the flesh. David, you got it? I don't like it. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to have problems. I want everything to be lovely and nice and sweet. But that's wishful thinking. Mine is to trustingly and joyfully embrace what is going on in my life. Not the sin I'm talking about everything else and the sin I repent of, hopefully. Trusting and embracing, knowing this, that as Jesus bore my sin in the cross, that's the reason he suffered. I now bear his reproach in this world, and we do that. And all of this is redounding to the glory of the Lord Jesus, for the glory of God the Father. Amen. So, this is God's work. From when? Beginning to eternity on the other side. Amen? This is the God whom we serve. And we say, hallelujah to his name. Amen.